vast expanse of Santa Monica Boulevard in between the Whole Foods and the Fat Burger across the street from the Pleasure Chest where it is always fist miss at this time of year. Once again, we convene. Turn that down a little there, Kyle. Thank you, brother. Kyle's at the Calm tonight, ladies and gentlemen. We have a special guest, DJ. Uh, Ryan is in Chicago for no reason that I can determine. And secondly, uh, 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 Matt Belknap is with uh, Jimmy Pardo in Chiapas, uh, down in Honduras. Oh, yes, he is. Uh, uh, a lot of you are like, why? That sounds important. Um, they're in love. And uh, I think when a couple wants to see Mexico the way they do uh, and climb a pyramid together, just wearing mandals, I think it's uh, nothing that we need to interfere in or judge in any way. I wonder if there could be more flashing lights to distract us from what you're talking about, Greg. That's my intention here tonight. Uh, anyway, uh, happy holidays and thank you. Uh, happy holidays to Matt and Ryan who are out in the world. And thank you very much, Kyle, for doing this for us tonight. Uh, it was an ad hoc last minute addition here at the bar. Lubitsch, uh, Aaron, who uh, runs a joint, uh, had a date fall open and we needed a Christmas date. And I wanted to come back here because I don't think there's any place more Christmassy. It already has lights and it's red. It has that... It has that Yuletide bordello feel that is so essential to Christmas. Like, if you were going to write a, a horrible diatribe that was many chapters long about the, the vast expanse of blackness that is your life, you might come here and sit in a corner and take out a pencil, a number two pencil, and write it on a big chief tablet. You know what I mean? In block letters. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, you can't see back here, but if you could, you'd see on either side of the cove that I'm sitting in are, are, are artistic nudes of uh, famous courtesans from the 90s. 19th century. And then, of course, this big giant mirror behind me, as I describe it to the people watching and listening in Proopcast Land in their blanket fort tonight, who uh, have no idea what the Bar Lubitsch looks like other than it's quite red. It's so red that you see green when you walk outside. That's how red it is here. After an evening in here, you walk outside and you're like, wow, West Hollywood's lime. The best part of the mirror is, of course, that you can see performers from behind, which is so necessary. But for me, the exciting part is I have no male pattern baldness. So I'm willing. I'm willing to let you look all night long. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Look at that. Oh, yeah. That's all I've got, baby. It's all up here. Oh, I didn't spray it on. I don't know. This is all me. Uh, what's left is, is fertile, I'll tell you that much. Uh, so uh, happy holidays to you. Uh, this will go out next Monday. Uh, by the time, of course, you're listening to this, it will be next Monday, which will create a time warp situation in your mind. And uh, it's an awesome movie to watch uh, during the Christmas holidays. Rocky Horror is always good. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we've received a gift here from a young fellow named Chad, and it's uh, the most Christmassy gift I could possibly think of. A lot of people are thinking, did he give you C. Clement Moore's The Night Before Christmas? Did he give you uh, 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 um, uh, Truman Capote's uh, Christmas memory? No, he gave me philosophy at a time of terror with dialogues with <laughs> Jürgen Habermas and Jacques Derrida. <laughs> Christmas time is here. Time to feel primal fear. Red despair and underwear. All inside. Oh, there's been marked. You've marked it, Chad. Does, are these your markings? Uh, it was used, but it's out of print. It was used, but it's out of print. It's the only copy I could find. So, in other words, no, you haven't marked the book, but you bought a book that was marked previously. Yes. Yes. This took a long time to get to that, man. <laughs> if I was Donald Trump, I'd be like, get this bum out of here! <laughs> yes or no? Uh, ooh. Was there a light shift? Oh, cool. Okay. All right. 
I don't mind if they happen. I just want it to happen for everyone. I mean, there's only so much I can handle. I, I can handle people's tempestuous, you know, uh, attitudes. I can handle the, the, the flurry of the season. I can handle my own horrible, yawning depression. I, I can handle my own inadequacies, even in a, in a terrible, fuzzy-like way. It, it's when lights shift and there's some sort of weird cosmic oscillation. That's when I d- can't take responsibility anymore. That's when, like, that, that was on you. I don't know what happened just then, but everything went down. The lights cycled down. They did, right? <laughs> Does this happen to you often? That and uh, uh, um, I have uh, floaters, uh, which are uh, a fantastic soul group from the 80s. And they did a song called <laughs> Float On. And they live inside my eyes. And so while I look at things, I'll hear, float, float on. My name's Greg. I'm a Libra. <laughs> I like orange aid and long walks by the shore. Uh, I have floaters, and if you have floaters, you know what it is. Like, you look one way, and all of a sudden, a weird purple object shoots across your field of vision. And so often, I'll be at home and go like, what the fuck was that? And then, it wasn't anything. And then I realize I'm high, and I'm watching West Side Story. And it was simply a high kick. There's more high kick fighting in that movie than any kung fu movie. There really is. At one scene, one, one point Bernardo goes like this, poof, in front of the guy's face, and you're like, wow. And you think, if you could, if you could have, oh, kittens. Oh, Blitzen. You know, he named them, right? Those aren't traditional names, like Dancer and Prancer and uh, Smancer and Schmixen or whatever, the Irving and Kipper and Snipper and Tixen. And flip away, flip away, flip away all. Hoping my hoopty and keep on rolling. Who bang, who bang through the night. I don't, I don't remember the words, obviously. But at the end, he says, happy Christmas. I remember that. But I heard him exclaim as he rode out of sight, happy Christmas to all and to all a good night. Uh, what's that play? Uh, oh, golly, there's a play from the 70s. It was uh, Christmas Eve and I was high as hell. Um, so somebody say stop here and we'll get a little yeah there's nothing like Derrida to brighten the holidays speaking of which let's have a little Christmas music there Kyle something super syrupy if you got any Johnny Mathis I'd fucking love you and I know you do but I'm, I'm forcing him to the task here you realize this and one of the main complaints about this free podcast that people can download for free on CraigProops.com and iTunes is that it takes a long time for everyone to find things on my iPod because I have 45,000 songs on my iPod and they're like why don't you organize it on the night and I've got an idea why don't you start your own podcast that's called Organized Fucking iPod and we'll go head to head and see how many listeners we get each week okay Is there no room for random chance in your life? A.A. Milne, who knew something, because he wrote, that's right, I'm quoting A.A. Milne. I've got Derrida on my hand, but I'm I'm going back to Pooh Corner for this one. By the way, there's an ungodly song by Loggins and Messina called House on Pooh Corner. It is so bad. It's uh, the Bilbo Baggins song by Leonard Nimoy. I always forgive. I feel like if you're on a TV show and you do a Bilbo Baggins song, you're just trying to get groovy with the people. 
But if you're logging to Messina and your job, your sworn job when you're a rock star, you sign it in blood, you, you, you bite your thumb and you rub your blood into a virgin and then you do coke off of Lufthansa stewardess's head and you fucking beat a dude with a bicycle chain and then you write, I will rock. <laughs> right? Ozzy did it. Uh, 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 Lemmy did it. A lot of guys did it. Fucking Loggins and Messina did it, but they went like this behind their back. <laughs> like Willy Wonka, right? If I give you this gobstopper, you have to promise that you won't tell anyone. And they go, <laughs> That's how Loggins and Messina signed their oath. Because I want to live on a house on Pucona. Fuck you. You're a beardy cokehead wearing a satin outfit. This is the 70s. You don't want to live in a house in Pooh Corner. This is almost two cats in the yard bad. With two cats in the yard, life used to be so hard. Now everything is greasy because of stew. Those are the original lyrics. Uh, violence as distorted communication. According to Habermann's argument, if global terrorism does not have a realistic... What kind of Christmas music are we... We're still Johnny Mathis. Crank that shit up. Really loud. What is violence? <laughs> He's singing a love song as we go along, walking in the winter wonderland. Why does violence occur? In the meadow we can build a snowman. Is there a way to stop it? And pretend that he's a circus clown. We in the West do live in a peaceful and well-to-do society. And yet they contain a structural violence that to a certain degree we've gotten used to. I.e. unconscionable and social inequality, degrading discriminations, pauperization, and marginalization. Thank you, Kyle. Oh, no, crank that part up. That part's good. Winter wonder, winter wonderland. And then wonder, wonder, wonder. Winter, winter, wonder, wonderland. When you listen to Johnny Mathis, do you imagine he's lying on a giant cushion? <laughs> like he's got that Perry Como feel of like. I'm going to stand up, but it's going to be about halfway through the song. <laughs> it is so smooth. And the echo on every Johnny Mathis song. I don't know who his producer was. I should, but I don't. One day, and the show will contain that. <laughs> Thank you, Chad, for this lovely Christmas book. We've also received another one. Where is that one, Kyle? Right uh, thank you. It's called... Um, this is the most Christmassy book of all. Uh, Michael John Simpson is our, our, our good friend, and he's here with his wife, Dana, and he does a podcast called The Something Something Experience, which we've taken part in, and he gave me a lovely book called Burt Reynolds, But Enough About Me. <laughs> and I don't think anything screams holidays. Like W.W. and the Dixie Dance Kings, Little Gator coming at you. Um... What are the two? Smokey one and Smokey two? Of course. Uh, what does he say? Uh, uh, she, he calls Sally Fields Froggy, is it? Froggy. And she goes, why you call me Froggy? And he goes, because you're cute and little and I'd like to jump you. <laughs> he, he used men in rape stick <laughs> as his deodorant through the whole 
of the 70s. I loved him so. He was on a show when I was a little kid called Dan August. Uh, uh, yeah, where it was Norman Fell and him were a t- detective team, right? And uh, he, at the opening credits, uh, Burt Reynolds would slide down a fucking like shoot, like with his fists being thrown and shit. And he wore this tight suit, and he was kind of this L.A. detective and shit. It was pretty groovy. Then there's a movie where he's an Indian, Charno's Land or something. I can't remember the name of it. What is it called? Choctaw's Land. Land. Yeah, don't fuck with Burt Reynolds when he's an Indian. Because that's when he's at his most dangerous. Yeah, and then of course there's The Longest Yard, which is uh, one of Robert Aldrich's sick uh, trilogies, syntilogy of movies. Uh, Robert Aldrich made uh, The Dirty Dozen, uh, Emperor of the North Pole, um, all these He-Man two-fisted uh, type pictures. And in between he made the gayest movies of all time. The Killing of Sister George, about a lesbian who's on a soap opera. Uh, um, the, the Legend of Lila Clare, uh, which has Coral Brown in a wheelchair with braces on as the horrible bitch uh, columnist. And Kim Novak plays two characters, a dead German movie star. I know you're confused. <laughs> I'm confused. That's just to give you an idea about Robert Aldrich. And then The Longest Yard, which isn't the gayest movie unless you think a lot of men in prison and there's drag queen cheerleaders isn't gay enough for you. (laughs) He also says to the secretary in The Longest Yard, she's got a big hairdo. That's a nice hairdo. And she goes, thanks. And he goes, ever find any spiders in there? (laughs) (laughs) Fucking Bert. And tight slacks and zip up boots, baby. Let's do this. No one has to say anything. Oh, by the way, uh, Kyle pointed out to me because he actually does something that I never do, which is read the table of contents. Uh, it's it's uh, Buddy, teammates, Watson, Duncan, Rip Torn, Spencer Tracy, Betty Davis, Jim Brown, John Borman, and John Voigt, Helen Gurley Brown, Lee Marvin, Roy Rogers. Yeah, it's all people. So it's oh, then one just jocks. Yeah. And one chapter that we're going to right now called Charles Nelson Riley. I didn't write this, by the way. I want you to know. Uh, uh, I'm excited about it as you are, but uh, it was written by Burt Reynolds as told to, oh no, and John Wink Winokur, who's written lots of uh, star bios. In fact, let's just look in the back here. John Winokur is the author of two dozen nonfiction books, including advice to writers. Uh, Charles Nelson Riley. When I told my dad I wanted to be an actor, he said, if you ever bring any of those sissy boys around here, I'll shoot them and make a rug out of them for your mother. I don't think you could find a better sentence to start a book with in West Hollywood. We're batting a thousand tonight, everybody. At the end of his life, whenever he saw Charles, he kissed him on the cheek. Dad always called him Chuck because Charles had this other personality. He defected deep voice and introduced himself to some of the real butch guys in it, including my dad, as Chuck Riley. <laughs> that, my friends, is acting. <laughs> if you ever thought that the match gamer Lidsville was the extent of Charles Nelson Riley's thespianic adventures, he called himself Chuck Riley when he wanted to be straight. <laughs> Hi, I'm Chuck. They call me Chuck Wagon because I have an enormous thing that horses go between. (laughs) 
Dad must have known that Charles was gay. Really, Bert? Well, if he did, then that makes it unanimous. We, we knew we had one holdout on that one. Evidently, it was Burt Reynolds' demised father. Still, the jury was out with him. Oh, he said his name was Chuck, and he gave me a firm handshake. <laughs> one day, he said, you know, I like Chuck. He's a good guy. That was high praise coming from Big Burt. God. Wanting your dad's approval is so cool. <laughs> Still fantastic. Charles was a marvelous performer. His autobiography, autobiography his auto, his one man show, Save It for the Stage. <laughs> Uh, Charles had another demon, his Swedish mother. She was hell on wheels and scared everybody to death. That explains a lot. <laughs> when he was growing up, she had an arsenal of racial and ethnic insults she would rain down on passerby from her apartment window. She was so unpopular in the neighborhood, she had to take out a baseball bat whenever she went out. <clears throat> I spent my adolescence in an Ingmar Bergman movie, Charles said. <laughs> said Bergman <laughs> he was so great I think Charles was underrated as an actor uh, we all agree he studied acting with Uta Hagen it's, it's all so true thank you very much for this it's just sensational uh, I can't wait to read it I really am this is going to be my Christmas book the, I want to read about Lee Marvin from Burt Reynolds and, uh, and I, know, I know you guys would rather do that than have the rest of the show take place <laughs> As would I. But the show has to start at a certain point. But you know what? Fuck it. Let's have a little... It, it was a toss-up for me between Lee Marvin and, Jane, and Jim Brown, but I'm going to go Lee Marvin on this one. Uh, Lee was a shrewd judge of people and could sniff out bullshit a mile away. At the same time, he had sympathy for anyone with less fortunate than himself, but he did have an ornery streak. Mm. He ran away from home when he was four and was later expelled from a series of exclusive boarding schools including a Catholic academy in Florida, for pushing a kid out of a window, he said. <laughs> for pushing a kid out of a window. <laughs> Fucking Lee Marvin. I've done it before, but I didn't do it again. It's from the Dirty Dozen. Ralph Meeker comes in, and he's just given everyone a psychological profile, and he sits down, and there's a bottle of Johnny Walker Black that's been Greeked. They've turned it around, but it's clearly a bottle of Johnny Walker Black, and I'm sure it's real, and they're drinking, and Lee Marvin goes, well, and Ralph Meeker goes, uh, there's two religious weirdos, one malignant dwarf, and I don't want to talk about the rest. A malignant dwarf. <laughs> But I didn't do it justice because it's, well, what do you think, Lee Marvin? And then Ralph Meeker, who even speaks more blubbery than Lee Marvin, Ralph Meeker goes like this. <laughs> Some religious weirdos, a malignant dwarf, and I don't want to talk about the loss. <laughs> Lee obviously suffered from battle fatigue or PTSD or whatever you want to call it. Oh, yeah, he'd been in, a, in the war. He was evacuated to a hospital ship uh, at anchored offshore. Let's see here. Oh, here it is. He received a Purple Heart in Saipan. A sniper's bullet hit him in the butt. Not of a very romantic place to be shot, he said. 
Maybe that's why in Point Blank he pursues his goal with such icy fury. <laughs> Maybe that's why in Hell in the Pacific he and Tashir Mufuni have a knockdown drag out vengeance fucking fight till they realize we're all the same under the skin. <laughs> My company, what was left of it, was still there. I was safe on a hospital ship. I was a deserter and a coward, and I cried. He could never shake the guilt from surviving while so many of his buddies died. Isn't that amazing? Lee Marvin made it to what, 50, 60? 59? Cheers, everybody. Ah, uh, wow. That's so fit. Oh, point blank. It actually mentions point blank. One night, uh, Lee and I went for drinks, and he got smashed, and I said, I promised your wife I'd get you back by 1 o'clock. I dragged him in the car, and he got on the roof and wouldn't come down. <laughs> It's the hap happiest season of all. I'd had a few drinks myself and I figured, what the hell, it's late. There's no traffic, I'll just go slow. <laughs> this story's off the chain. So I drove about 10 miles an hour up the Pacific Coast Highway. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Who's that on your roof? <laughs> Looks like Lee Marvin, doesn't it? Oh my God. Uh, I looked in the mirror and saw two cops in the cruiser behind... Fuck, how did I know? <laughs> and thought, oh, shit. But all they did was drive up beside us and go, Hi, Lee, and drive off. <laughs> Fuck, I wish it was at the end. <laughs> I can't follow that. I really, really can't follow that. God damn it, that's a good story. I mean, you know, you're going to live a long time. You're going to tell a lot of stories. In fact, this holiday season, you're going to be with family and, uh, and people you like, too. And, uh, and, oh, there'll be giblets for slunching and snunching and crunching. Uh, and at one point, uh, someone's going to go, I'm going to tell a joke. And that that's when your heart sinks into your fucking shoes and you want to kill everyone. And like, you're like, no, Uncle Bill, don't tell a joke. Or uh, here's something funny that happened. Never, ever start anything funny with here's something funny. I'm a professional comedian a lot of the time in my spare time. And I never start a joke with this one's going to fucking knock your socks off. Just tell the story and we'll decide. But don't go like this halfway through the joke. Oh, 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 oh I forgot to say, he had only one arm. <laughs> Guy goes to a Christmas party and he's DJing, right? And he's, Siamese twins come up. And uh, after, the, after the night's over, the dance, they go like, we'd like you to come back to the room with us. He goes back to the room and they have wild, wild flagrante, right? And while they're doing it, uh, one of them plays the trombone. <laughs> The other one plays the banjo, right? They're Siamese twins, so they're, uh, 
The next day, there's uh, f- cheerful goodbyes all around. The next year, another Christmas disco. And uh, same DJ, there's the same twins. And the twins come right up to front of the DJ booth and they go, Bet you don't remember us. <laughs> so. There's one you can tell. Notice how I didn't use any profanity. Uh, we're here tonight, and then we're at the Nerd Melt on the 15th. Come and join us there. That's $10, and there's no booze, but it's still fun. Uh, we get high out and back. Uh, we don't, but people have done. Mm. The, the saddest fire department in the world is out and back. The happiest fire department in the world across the street right here. If you get high on Santa Monica Boulevard, the, the, the gay fire department's right there. Next to a place called, like, Rock Over or some bullshit. And there's a dude in front playing all night in, in the stoop of Rock Over, which I thought was appropriate. I don't know how I knew. Uh, and the 30th will be at the Punchline in San Francisco, California. IA, my beloved uh, city, uh, join me as we link hands. Uh, as Hunter Thompson said, you could see the high tide of the 60s, right? Uh, it was just outside of San Francisco where it, where it reached up to and then it stopped. Uh, the high tide of everything post-60s has reached up to it, and there's an app now that you can get <laughs> to let you know that you don't want to have a social intercourse with anyone ever again. Uh, we'll be in San Francisco before that happens. Join us there, won't you? And uh, we'll also be there for New Year's weekend and uh, New Year's Eve and shit like that. But strangely, not the first, which is, I think, a Saturday. We'll be there the second, which I know is a day... I guess they figure everyone takes the first off and just dies, and then we all come back out swinging on the second. Uh, and the hilarious part of doing New Year's, which I've done for the last... Oh, I don't know. What was the... I'm trying to remember the last... When I first started doing New Year's gigs. MCM. It was a... Publius was counsel that year with Biblius. They were co-counsel. I don't remember a lot. I made a sacrifice. It went terrible, right? The, the bull didn't die right away. Everyone looked at me. You know what I mean? It was one of those terrible auguries. We let, well, I gave the, the sacred chickens wouldn't eat the feed. We let pigeons go. One of them got aced by a fucking bird. It was awful. Long time ago. Trajan. Trajan. Trajan was emperor. And you know why? Because he was gay and he was Spanish. And he goes to this neighborhood now. There's a little bar called Trajan's around the corner. Mount mount up and conquer, Gladius. Draw draw your Gladius. The empire was at its highest extent under Trajan. That's only bullshit history. I think even when they were alive then, they had no notion that it was the biggest time. They probably were like, this is just like before. Like us, they were heedless. If the Romans had had TV, it is my firm belief that it would have been exactly like the Star Trek episode where the Romans had TV. (laughs) Do you remember that episode? They land on a planet and the people have emulated Rome for no good reason that we can account for. Why a planet billions of light years away from, he says, a five-year mission into deep space, right? So we obviously, because they can fly at warp speed and then they can fly at uh, past warp speed, at, uh, they can go as fast as light, faster than light. They, they can go anywhere, right? And planets have fucking found a fucking book of Edith Hamilton's Greek myths or something and like gone, let's fucking, or Gibbon or something. There's a Greek myth one where the whole planet's Greek and then there's a Roman one. And on the Roman one, uh, 
they have to fight gladiator fights, but they fight him on television. <laughs> and Spock is uh, is brainwashed and fights Kirk on TV, and it's that bum 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 it's very good. And he's like, no, Spock, I can't. And Spock's this king. Spock has enormous strength, if you recall. They did give him super strength as a Vulcan. Every once in a while, he'll pick a dude up and just chuck him and shit. And you're like, oh, Spock's a badass. You want him in a fight. It was McCoy that you were always like, just sit down. I need... I need, if I'm picking sides, I'm taking Spock first because he has the power of ten humans. Then Scotty because he has the power of a drunk Scottish person. Then Uhura because she had a fucking knife in her boot in the fucking reverse episode, alternate universe evil Enterprise episode. And then Chekhov because he's Russian and is bound to start a fight at some point. <laughs> And Chekhov is Billy Clanton in the uh, OK Corral one who doesn't die but gets shot earlier in the episode. And Spock knows the OK Corral history so well that he's laying there and Bones is like, I don't know if he's dead or what the fuck. And of course, he never said what the fuck. Jim, that's perplexing. (laughs) Spock goes... One member of the Clanton gang survived the shootout at the OK Corral, and it was Billy Clanton. And Chekhov is Billy Clanton. Kirk's like, Ben. He might not be dead. Bones. Damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a miracle worker. Every once in a while, Bones, you hear the southern accent, too. He'll come in and be like, hey, Jim. You're like, oh, someone's from Georgia. Uh, but I believe that would be true. I think that if, uh, let's put it this way. If TV could show gladiators killing each other on TV now, they fucking so would. That's, that's not even a question, really. It's show business. Um, there's, there's ultimate fighting where people get in cages and kick each other in the face with their feet and shit, which I didn't think was going to happen when I was little. <laughs> When I was little, you'd watch a sci-fi movie and people would have phones where they'd talk to each other on a TV and I always thought, ugh, what if you're, you know, don't want to? <laughs> you know, what if you're in your underwear? You're got, you know, you had like foam antlers on your head and chocolate sauce all over you and your fucking ball clamps on or whatever, you know, like, you know. I don't want to talk to the fucking counselor from the 8th Federation and shit. Let's just take this on speaker. You know what I mean? Let's go breakfast to Tiffany's on this one. I'm not ready to go fucking full sci-fi on this with the fucking telephone. I don't want to vote like in Rollerball where the whole world votes on telly and shit. And they just go, hmm, like that. And then their monitor goes off. And then John Houseman is all self-satisfied. <laughs> Yes. But uh, they have a, they have that ultimate fighting. Ronda Rousey got her uh, her her lunch handed to her, and that was pretty shocking. And that was on telly, and we all accept that like it's just a normal course of events in our day. And yet we cast dispersions because the Romans like to see dwarves fight lesbians in the Colosseum. The crowd's gone quiet because they fucking did, you guys. Yeah. Anything you can imagine, they did, and that's the horror of it. 
And they thought they were as sophisticated as any people in the world. And by the way, the Middle East was a problem for them. They had to invade, yeah. They had to invade it over and over again. Yeah, and immigration, a very big issue. Huns, Vandals, Goths, Visigoths, oh yeah. Immigration was a serious issue for the Roman Empire. It was a lot, you know, hey, what can I say? You mean, are you making an analogy to today's perplexing terroristic events as broken down by Habermans and Derrida earlier in the show? I'm making more of a Johnny Mathis level comparison. (laughs) Uh, At the end of the day, and Will Durant would back me up on this, uh, uh, the Roman Empire gave us Christianity. And so, if you want to blame them for anything, (laughs) to blame them for our barbarity or our law system or or the fact that we have Latin on our money or any of that jazz, or that we use a giant fascistic eagle holding a fucking fasces of arrows in its fist that when Obama gave his speech the other night, the fucking eagle was... And it was like, the Romans... And at the top of every flag is an eagle, just like the Romans carried and always had an eagle. The imperial fucking eagle that let you know who you were fucking fighting. And if you could steal one of their eagles during a battle, that was hot shit. Uh, they, they fucking negotiated to get their eagles back. I don't know if anyone saw that movie with Channing Tatum. <laughs> <laughs> fucking true story, man. <laughs> Donald Sutherland and shit, right? They had to go to Scotland and get back the eagles. <laughs> no one watches cable when they're high. <laughs> It's just Hulu, because you guys are hip. Only the old man watches cable. What's that one called? The Last Legionnaire or some fucking nonsense? It's fucking awesome. What's it called? Lost Legion. Thank you. Uh, Other Loser Dudes. (laughs) We who are about to die, right? Uh, Thank you. The Lost Legion. I'm not the only person in the room who's seen it. Channing Tatum is a Roman I think he's even like a, a, a centurion he's, he's an officer and uh, 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 I said Channing Tatum from Magic Mike 1 and Double Extra Large is a Roman officer in this movie and uh, they have a giant fucking fight with the, the Scots or some nonsense they make up some bullshit and um, then he has to go find uh, this lost legion, right? And, and they've lost a couple standards and shit. It's very good. At one point, he reaches a group of people who dress like seals. I thought that would get a better reaction. If I was a screenwriter and I was writing this movie and I was lost in Scotland looking for a fucking standard with only a guy to help me and shit on one horse and I was the only legionnaire out there and shit and I ran into a culture of people that were all fucking dressed like seals, I'd flip out. I think it had something to do with they live by the sea or whatever, but they kind of fucking all came up and they've got like, but not just seal costumes, the gray spotted ones, like they were Scottish ones, and they were like, and they all, of course they all, they all talk like Scottish actors of a contemporary nature. As you know, all Romans are British except for Channing Tatum. And Joaquin Phoenix. Other than that, all Romans are British. Russell Crowe's from the Antipodes, but he passed as British. And Oliver Reed, of course. I I didn't. I didn't say I knew the emperor. I said he gave me my freedom. Win the crowd, Spaniard. Oliver Reed was shooting that picture uh, in Malta. And uh, he had to be on the set the next day, and he was out drinking. And uh, there was a bunch of sailors at the bar, and they were drinking like 
rum and black or something, some weird fucking, and not, I mean, rum and black's not a weird English drink, but they're drinking something even weirder than that. And they went, Oliver Reed, come over and have a drink with us. And he's like, I gotta get, you know, I gotta get up. And they're like, Oliver Reed. And he was like, <laughs> so he sat down with them, ended up arm wrestling with them and shit, and then had a fucking heart attack and died in the bar. And... <laughs> Ridley Scott had to CGI his ass for the rest of the fucking movie. And he's the best part of the goddamn movie, and you know he is. Oliver Reed brings gravity and self-pity at a level only known to Lee Marvin in motion pictures. Am I right? Uh, then we'll be uh, uh, in uh, the Helium in Portland. Really? We're still on this, Greg? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we'll be in Portland, Oregon, uh, the 14th through the 17th, podcast on the 17th at the Helium there. They sell legal marijuana in Oregon, so join me there, won't you? The 22nd through the 24th, we'll be at the Houston Improv. The podcast will be on the 24th. They don't sell legal marijuana there, so join me, won't you? <laughs> it's also the George Herbert Walker Bush International Airport, which is right next to Exxon, which makes it super extra awesome. <laughs> Houston's good fun. 128 through uh, the 30th. I don't know why I said 1. January. Uh, 28th through 30th. American Comedy Company in San Diego. I'm not certain why they're called the American Comedy Company. It's clear we're in America. I don't know if there's a legal border patrol reason or something because they're in San Diego. If they were the San Isidro take you over the border at night coyote company, then it would be a different matter, but they're not. There's an enormous American Eagle on stage behind you the whole time you perform. That is unsettling. Yeah, yeah, it's real. It's real. Freedom is not free. Sometimes you have to stand in front of an eagle while you're trying to be funny. Eagles say a lot of things. Larfs is not one of them. Even in the birds of prey world, eagles are known as being extra taciturn. My understanding is they mate reluctantly. And unsatisfactorily, as most bird matings are. Because male birds, despite their prowess at so many things, flying, killing, whatnot, swimming, their dicks are small. Now, if you're a bird, don't fucking write in and shit. I don't want to hear from any peregrine falcons and shit. I was... First time writer, long time listener. I've been swooping in ever decreasing circles over the show for the last five years. Recently, during an updraft, I caught wind of the fact that you insinuated that birds of prey were under endowed. Well, I'm here to tell you that I'm swinging an Adirondack 38. Reggie Jackson couldn't pick this fucking piece of lumber up. There'll be armadillos roasting and children a snowsting. The comedy works in Denver in March. Oh, a bl bunch of dates with the boys. Uh, we're doing Who's Live anyway. Uh, Joel Murray is here tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Let's hear it for him and his wonderful comedy. Joel Murray and I are in a group 
uh, and uh, with uh, two other guys. I can't remember their names. And uh, anyway, Joel and I are in this awesome duo. And we're on the road in February, and we'll be up in uh, Canada and uh, Anal Cortez, Washington, and uh, Victoria, B.C., and uh, Coquitlam, I believe, as well. Uh, and join us there, won't you? And then in March, we'll be at the Comedy Works in Danvier, and then in Philadelphia, at the end of March, uh, the beginning of uh, April, uh, that'll be in Philly. Uh, so hopefully the weather will have changed. We'll also be in Glasgow for the Glasgow Festival in March. Hopefully London as well. And hopefully Stockholm, but don't fucking bet on it yet. And then maybe Antwerp, if we're lucky. Galway in October. We're going back to Ireland. Going back to Ireland. Going back to Ireland. Uh, 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 I don't think so. Her shillelagh, small. Her heels, tall. She asked me if I was a leprechaun. Going back to Galway, 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 going back to Galway. Uh, uh, uh. I don't think so. <laughs> Smartest book in the world is available. The new album in the ballpark. Uh, I have a, a, several copies with me here tonight. I'll gladly sell you one after the show. Uh, once the show starts, I don't have, I haven't put the show on paper tonight. The paper's on phone tonight, which is uh, frustrating for me because I can't mark it up as I go along. And I, d I don't have my special pen. I have one of these pens. I, I went to do an NPR show called Mark. I'm mesmerized. I went to do an NPR. Five million quadlus on the Earthling. Um, I went to. I did an NPR show called uh, Against My Better Judgment. No, I did an NPR show. I love. I like white people. I'm a white person. I did an NPR show, and don't call in. White people aren't the only people to listen to National Public Radio. I know. It's just funnier if I say it. A lot of Volvos have an NPR port in them. Right near the Whole Food GPS. Does that make it funnier? Now it's not so racist, it's just true. We're going to a toy drive. I'm sure Consuela's stealing. I'm sure of it. I mean, why can't they celebrate Christmas? They're Jewish, but fuck it. Put a tree up. <laughs> what blanket? Uh, does anyone remember what I was talking about? I, I do, of course. Called Marketplace. And they gave me this pen, and it had a rubber tip on the end of it. Not on this end. Not, not on the fighting end. But on the bit, the uh, the bit, you know, the relaxation end, um, and it was rubber. And I go, why is there a rubber inflatable ball tip on the end of the pen? And this is marketplace, so they would know, right? And he goes, uh, because you can use it to touch your device with. I'm like, you mean instead of your hand? <laughs> so I, this one won't work because it's made of the solid latinum. I bought it from a Ferengi outside. But the other one does. It makes your, it makes your device move, uh, well, so to speak. That, was a, that sounded like a lyric by Three Dog Night. <laughs> but it, uh, uh, yeah, this one doesn't. Uh, this, in fact, uh, Jennifer and I were in New York, and uh, because we're uh, swinging hipsters, and I know how to treat the ladies, uh, on Thanksgiving, we went to see uh, Terrence Blanchard. And I don't have any Terrence Blanchard on my iPod, I don't think. Uh, we went to see Terrence Blanchard at the Blue Note. 
and um, he had a whole new bag he was in. It was super fusion, and uh, we were way close, so close that the drum was going right through my fucking spine. <laughs> and at one point, I had to have a spinal tap. It was like it like I don't know when you're so close to the drums that like the liquid in your brain is like <laughs> there's a symbol like the the rattling sound in your ear. So I took a napkin and I stuck it in my ear, not a whole napkin, although that would have been funnier. <laughs> It would have been funny if I'd stuck a whole napkin in either ear like this and tied it around my throat and held my knife and fork like this the whole time. But there was a guy in the front row of the Terry Blanchard show. And I mean, we were over on the side. And he, he's, mo he's, he's cool most. You, you have to see it. The, the guitar player's off the chain. But uh, if you get a chance to see Terrence Blanchard, go see him. I called him Terry, but... He goes by turns. And uh, he's fabulous. And he does all the scores for uh, Spike Lee and whatnot. He's a, he's a tremendous composer, jazz artist. Uh, a guy in the front row like this the whole time on his phone. And I mean like two rows back. And you're like, dude, you're at a jazz show. Like, have you no? And then the answer, no. You can't even ask the question. Because the douche attitude is so present that it's overwhelming you in a, in a, in a cyclonic wave. It's a tsunami of douchitude. You can't ask someone why they would be on their phone at a jazz show unless they were a surgeon and a busload of orphans had recently been in a near-fatal accident. And they had to take the fucking call. Otherwise, fuck you to death forever with a stick. I mean, people do it at comedy shows, but there's little we can do. The staff is so lax. <laughs> anyway, this pen won't do it, but the other one would. And it was a good, it was good fun marketplace. Uh, oh, John Lennon passed away this week. Uh, some, well, he's walking on into another universe at all times. I always quote the same John Lennon quote, but uh, I thought I'd do a different one this time. My favorite one, of course, is God is a concept by which we measure our pain. Um, but I prefer at Christmas to go, uh, war is over if you want it, which I think is one of his most beautiful... Uh, and now there's a person who, uh, we've, uh, there's a lot of yokoization in the world, if you know what I mean. When guys get with different women who affect them in different ways, uh, the world tends to yokoize them in, in so much as they'll be like, oh, well, one, she's the other, two, she's intellectual, uh, or, or one, let's get to the point of it, one, she's a different race, two, she's intellectual, three, she's bringing in a, 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 an avant-garde point of view that we didn't want him to have, we wanted him to be cuddly, and we wanted him to stay the same unevolved person forever, instead of the evolved person that he became, and started singing about enormous concepts like uh, family and mother and love and dejection and being addicted to heroin and peace and war and, and all the things that are essential and primal. And uh, I think that's the, um, the beauty of him and Yoko is uh, that uh, they made that record together and it's a wonderful record. And then her part where she comes in and sings is intolerably awful. And, uh, <laughs> it, it's, uh, it, 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 but that's the beauty of John and Yoko, right? You know, it, it's, it's the yin and yang of them. She's an unassailable artist of enormous magnitude and of great humor and sensitivity. Go and look at Yoko Ono's. We've read from her book, Grapefruit, on the show, of course, and I've talked about her work before on the show, but sometime give a, give a gander to her work. She has a tremendous sense of humor in it and is really the one that introduced him, I think, to a higher concept. I wasn't going to say high concept. The Beatles were certainly high concept, but uh, a, a high concept. Well, if the Beatles aren't high concept, I don't know what the fuck is. <laughs> when you start as four guys dressed alike who sing Love Me Do, and then five years later, uh, everybody smoke pot, I am the walrus. Similina Pilchard climbing up the Eiffel Tower. Okay. This is a single, right? 
We're supposed to play this and dance to it, are we? <laughs> right? Okay. That's good. Uh, so when she comes in, it's fantastic. Uh, and anyway, the climate talks were in Paris this week. And uh, at the same time, Beijing was covered by an unassailable, well, an indescribable um, black cloud out of a fucking sci-fi movie. And that happened this week in the real world that we live in. So when you watch these movies that often have um, Dennis Quaid in them, and uh, the, the climate changes and all that... It's, it's not a movie, you guys. It's not a movie. I mean, I, you know, no, a computer's not going to take over the world tomorrow and everything probably won't end. But um, that can happen. When an enormous black cloud hangs over Beijing that's so big that they didn't allow the children to go to school. And I'm presuming in Beijing there's millions of children that have to go to school. It's not just ten children. It's not Calabasas had a bummer. It's... <laughs> it's Bay motherfucking Jing. Ka-ching, ka-ching. It is the big, big Beijing. And uh, uh, so I'm hoping uh, something happens at the climate talks. At the, what'll happen is this. The European nations will agree on something. We'll pull back and take two steps back from that. And the Chinese will take five steps back from that and then agree to some capitulating nonsense. Uh, it'll take a dolphin barfing on the fucking premier of China. A dolphin that has walked to the Politburo. <laughs> with a fucking cigarette hanging out of its mouth for the Chinese to stop doing what they're going to do. Uh, and I don't mean all Chinese people, so don't fucking write into the show. I don't take responsibility for what the United States government does when I'm overseas, nor should any of us have to. However, we have to answer for it because we're elected representatives as soon as we walk out the fucking door. Um, but I don't blame every uh, Chinese person for uh, the government, nor do I blame every Russian person for uh, Vladimir Putin. When he won the election, he cried, and that'll show you how much it meant to him. And the crowd went quiet. That was supposed to be funny. <laughs> Stalin said, it's not who votes, it's who counts the votes. <laughs> oh! That one's sailing back. It's going to go just foul. <laughs> right behind first base. Looks like Proops is going to get another chance. <laughs> You may write us at fanmailforgreg at gmail.com. Uh, I read them all. I do not respond to them all. Why don't you respond to them all? I'm so busy. <laughs> I make homemade eggnog every morning. <laughs> we had eggnog last week, and it was good, I have to say. And we were at the grocery store. Grocery store. I'm from the 30s. <laughs> I picked up the phone, and I said, Bessie, give me the exchange. <laughs> I was like Elliot Ness. You're a punk and I'm going to run you in. <laughs> we were at the supermarket. And uh, right here in WeHo. And I was standing gazing at the milk aisle. And uh, you know how people do. I love when people stare for like a year at like the chip aisle of the dips or whatever. Like for a year. Like they stand in front of it and they're like mess, you know, hypnotized. And you're like... Honestly, just pick a salsa. It's going to be okay. <laughs> They're probably pretty good, all of them. Uh, so I was gazing at the milk. Jennifer was elsewhere in the store. Uh, she was helping a small child. And I... Uh, 
Lady, me no can reach alcohol. Here you go, my darling. It's pronounced tequila, not tequila. Thank you, lady. Where's your mother? I ain't got no mother. Ian writes us at fanmailforgreg at gmail.com. You say you hate pretzels. I do. I say I hate them. I'll eat them. But I do hate them. Like Joan Jack, I hate myself for loving pretzels. I don't love them, but I'll eat them. But they're too dry. They're too dry. It's like eating out of a planter or a terrarium. You have a pretzel and you're like, it's never pleasant. Uh, okay, if you think my theorem is fault, if my if my fall, if this is my uh, whole theory is full of is fallacious. Uh, I, well, you need to go to a party uh, at this Christmas year and fucking just take a big handful of pretzels while you're talking to someone and fucking cram them in your mouth and then see how witty and fucking yeah see if you Oscar Wilde the place for a while see if you Lauren Bacall this moment because you won't you'll, you'll Lauren Bacall me and say Greg you were right <laughs> Uh, yeah, pretzels are a hindrance to social interaction. If you're alone, do what you like. Um, I, what do you prefer? Potato chips with dip, I'll be honest. Or, uh, obviously, this is California. Uh, corn chips, always. Uh, tortilla chips, let's be honest. The greasier, the better, and more salt. And could you put some lime on them, too? And don't put anything in your avocado. Don't put anything in the guacamole. A little garlic, a little salt, maybe some lime. Don't fuck, don't, you know, when I was little, my mother put mayonnaise in. She's my mom, you guys. <laughs> to be honest, you were asking for it. Fuck off. I don't do it anymore. I did, but I don't. You say you hate pretzels, Ian writes. You say you hate pretzels, but what about, and then this is in all capitals, so I'm going to read it like it's written. You say you hate pretzels, but what about yogurt? <laughs> Covered pretzels, Greg, my man. <laughs> What's up, bitch? <laughs> Tony Kameen, Chris Hobbs. Chris Mancini, Karen Anderson, all from the Bay Area. It was always, what's up, bitch? <laughs> Covered pretzels, my man! <laughs> uh, I love yogurt covered pretzels. I'm not going to eat them in public. If you see me eating them, you'll have invaded my private space. <laughs> Thank you for your question, Ian. Kittens, let's talk about your underwear. 
It needs to be comfy, snug, and in all the right places, baby. Look good and feel good. You don't just want your underwear comfy. You want the world's most comfortable underwear. And that's me undies. Every pair of me undies is made of micromodal fabric, which doesn't sound sexy. Once you feel your me undies rubbing up against your skin, underneath your clothing, you'll never go back to regular old underwear again. With MeUndies, you'll feel more comfortable than ever before. Ever. MeUndies has a ton of different colors to choose from because colors come in tonnage. It's the only place to find styles for both men and women. And a new signature design every month. They also, you guys, just launched a new boxer line. In the clearing stands their boxers and their boxers and their line. It's like wearing nothing at all, only better somehow. So go to MeUndies.com slash poops right now to get 20% off your first order, plus all orders in the United States and Canada always ship for free. MeUndies even has a money-back guarantee. If you don't love your first pair, you get to keep it and get a full refund. You literally have nothing to lose. For 20% off your first order of the world's most comfortable underwear, head to MeUndies.com slash poops. MeUndies.com slash poops right now. 20% off MeUndies.com slash proofs. I thank you. My kittens thank you. And my McTavish thanks you. John writes, Dear Proof Master Proosh and the Prurient Proof. <laughs> See what he did? It's Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Dear Proof Master Proosh and the Prurient Proof. Uh, the podcast title last week was Colossi. Your podcast title this week was not a plural noun but an adjective. Just a heads up. <laughs> Calm worshippings and clearest vodkas, John. Thank you, John. At first, I was taken by his argument because I was in a moment of weakness. My blood sugar was low. <laughs> and I agreed with him. And then I looked it up immediately. And, of course, he's wrong. <laughs> so, John, and I wrote him back. First, I wrote, this will be dealt with summarily and immediately. And then I wrote back, we both lose. And this is the postscript that John wrote without the, word, without the letters P.S. Never mind, me brain poorly two time from time. <laughs> Evidently, Harry Belafonte helped him write that last line. <laughs> I'm upside down, my head is turning around because I'm... What was Joe... <laughs> Alan Sherman, because I had to leave my girl in Levittown. Thank you, everybody. Alan Sherman. It's always Jewish. What was it? Streets of Miami? I shot my partner, Sammy. And poor Sammy crumbled like peace halva. That's in a song. You'll see the sleigh bells slinging and ching, ching, jingling too. You know it's lovely weather for a sleigh ride together with Jews. Don't hide your light. Colossi, noun, plural, colossi, colossae, colossi, colossuses. One, first definition, this is from dictionary.com, the source authority. I went on the OED site, right, the Oxford English Dictionary, but they don't you have an Oxford English Dictionary in your library on a stand with a, a magnifying glass? No. <laughs> I'm not Sir Lawrence Olivier in the movie Sleuth. <laughs> I'd like to, but I don't have a commodious enough study. 
the legendary. I have a few baseball tchotchkes. Jennifer allows me. I believe it. I have loads of junk. There's no question. She allows me way more than I. There's pigs, but there's. I have, a, I have an autographed picture of Willie Mays and an autographed picture of Joe DiMaggio and, uh, and, a, and an autograph from Buck O'Neill. But um, uh, the garage is really where the action is. Um, but uh, the uh, initial capital colossi, there was something that had to do with something. Noun or adjective? Yes, the noun or adjective. Hmm. The show seems to have ground to a screeching halt. <laughs> and there was so much levity before, so much gaiety. I thought the flow would never stop. It was like a volcano in Sicily. It was exciting. And then came that weird pause. Colossuses. No one's ever fucking said colossuses. I don't have an OED in my study, but uh, we do have lots of books. Stacked everywhere, as you might imagine, including these ones that I'm going to read from when the show starts. <laughs> Fucking A. Uh, first definition, the legendary bronze statue. So I went on the OED website, and I was looking up Colossi. And I go on OED, and it's like, oh, log in to look it up. And I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> F you, OED. I'm not, I don't want to be on your OED list. I will not be defined by you. I would rather go to dictionary.com and take my fucking chances. <laughs> Cast the, uh, 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 whatever it is, uh, etymological dice, as it were, to try to... The uh, initial capital letter, the legendary bronze statue of Helios at Rhodes. That's the first one I thought of, because there's one colossus that they always mention. One I mentioned one on the week, last week's episode... Colossus, the Forbin Project. If you're going to talk, um, go get me a vodka. And uh, is anyone going toward the bar? Yeah, my language like, I really want to drink Yeah, go, you're free to go drink at any, thank you, my darling. Thank you, my precious love. I didn't mean to be a dick, but there you are. Um, uh, the, the Colossus at uh, Rhodes was a famous statue that's not there, not no more. I think there's one in Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. There's a Colossus quite a lot like the Colossus at Rhodes. And they, they foil it. it. It comes to life and it, it chases them around, but it clanks because it's Ray Harryhausen and it's bronze and whatnot. And then they pull the uh, plug out of its heel and it goes and falls to the ground. Why are you telling us this? Because the other night I made Jennifer watch Mysterious Island with Herbert Lama's Captain Nemo. It's got everybody in it. It's fucking good. Um, but uh, Herbert Long comes in as Captain Evo and he's wearing a giant seashell on his back as a fucking scuba tank. Yeah. It is good. And he's got white, white wig. And uh, the Nautilus is there. You think I'm lying about Mysterious Island. It's completely worthy. A very fucking entertaining movie. As Jennifer pointed out, they were attacked by a chicken and what was it? A, a, a squid, a chicken, and a fish or whatever. Like the things that attack them are hilarious in this movie. Because, you see, it's a mysterious island, so there's a mystery. All of a sudden, a chicken runs in, and they're like, fucking chicken! And they, it's almost like Sleeper. They have to fucking kill a, a giant chicken. It's very good. Uh, number two, second definition, any statue of gigantic size. Third definition, anything colossal, gigantic, or over, or very powerful. Really? 
Anything very powerful is colossal. How about that? There you are. I mentioned crazy people in the show last week because I was talking about people shooting one another in this country. And I said some sort of glib statement like when crazy people have guns. Not everyone who shoots everyone is crazy. Often the people who shoot people are. And not everyone who's crazy harms other people is what I meant to say. Uh, we all have a certain amount of craziness. I certainly have enough in my life and uh, my own psyche. And I didn't want to diminish anyone who uh, has any sort of mental illness or anything like that. And I'm not being extra PC here. I'm just trying to be sensitive sensitive to the fact that you can't just bandy around things like, well, he was a crazy shooter or everyone who shoots people is crazy and shit like that. A lot of us have a lot of conditions, whether it's uh, manicness or depression or whatever it is that people uh, are going through. And it's personal to us and it has no... Uh, thank you so much, my darling. Alcoholism is a condition that I... Thank you. <laughs> Uh, very much. And uh, uh, so in any case, I just wanted to be sensitive in that regard and not say glib statements. I'm, I'm quite aware of that. Jennifer pointed out to me after the show that you oughtn't just say the kind of nonsense that people say on TV and shit like that. Someone on Fox News this week said that the President Obama was a pussy. And you're like, that's that's just I mean, that's shit you say at home. Which, frankly, is in bounds, you know what I mean? Whatever you say to your beloved uh, or the people you love and you're sitting around the telly and it's just you guys, hey, I don't want to know about it, you know what I mean? That's private time. Once you uh, 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 have to swear the TV oath, which, by the way, all of us do that have ever been on TV, um, <laughs> to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, <laughs> even if you're on Fox News and you're a bloviating douchebag of the highest uh, reptilian proportions and you have no truck with anything that humanity wants to know about, uh, calling the president a pussy is out of bounds uh, for a lot of reasons. Why, Greg? Well, decorum one, too. Uh, let me quote uh, uh, Attorney Welch, right, when he said to Joe McCarthy, at long last, sir, have you no decency? Let's just try to keep this on the fucking adult level for five minutes, shall we? Uh, uh, I don't think, uh, yeah, calling people... But you call people all manner of names. I'm on a podcast. I'm not on a national news show. If I was on a national news show and you asked me uh, about someone that I was quite disappointed by, say, oh, Donald Trump or some nonsense, I wouldn't say, he's a fuck face. <laughs> I would try to think of something more articulate to say to get my argument across. Now, that's all I ask. This is all I ask. This is all I need. As Irene Berlin said, beautiful girls, walk a little slower. Maybe it wasn't Irene Berlin. We're jumping in. The show's going to start right now. Uh, Dick Cheney received a bust in the rotunda at the Senate last week. George W. Bush showed up. George and him uh, haven't been that frequent of visitors to the uh, Washington, which has been nice. Uh, Dick Cheney, of course, has never stopped flapping his doodle. Uh, I'm re I recall last Christmas when uh, Dick Cheney came on television right around a week from now. Uh, it'll be a week from when you're listening to this it'll be the exact week he came on TV about the middle of Christmas season and said uh, they were like torture you guys tortured and he went yeah i do it again in a minute <laughs> that was at Christmas last year <laughs> there should be something funny there but he was president for eight years <laughs> not elected president real president yeah. we had another president kind of like the Roman Empire when like Caligula was president and shit. <laughs> so they gave him a bust, which again, I don't want to get Roman on your ass. And he's smiling and not wearing glasses. And it's like, who is that? <laughs> this is what Dick Cheney was for eight years. A very small man who, when he appeared, would go... <laughs> Yeah. 
Then there was that one amazing moment, if you remember. Uh, and I know people are going to complain and they're going to write me. Dick Cheney's old news. Someone commented, because I, I, I do a bit on the album about Dick Cheney last year, uh, talking about torture at Christmas. And someone went, yeah, maybe that would have been funny 10 years ago. I'm sorry, how's your amnesia? That you don't remember anything that happened in the last decade. Oh, history just started the minute you started thinking of shit two seconds ago when you started touching yourself. That's when history fucking started. <laughs> there was a moment where they were having an event in the Rose Garden and Bush was speaking at the dais. And Dick Cheney, normally any vice president would stand sort of behind, right, or over to the right, over to the left. Dick Cheney, if you recall, was found in the garden like this. And was simply standing there, and the camera panned over, and he was like that. And then the event ended, and he fucked off. And you were like, what the fuck's happening? Why are you standing in the garden? He said at one point that the executive branch was above the law. And they gave him a bust in the Senate rotunda because he was president of the Senate for eight years. And Bush made some jokes. And I haven't heard jokes this funny since the WMD jokes of 2004. <laughs> he goes, uh, Bush came out. And Bush is funny, right? Bush got delivery. He goes, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I was, uh, last time I was here, I was hung. <laughs> right? Because they hung a picture of him. Yeah. And then he goes, and now I hear, and Dick Cheney's busted. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the laughter of the small dead children. <laughs> so funny from beyond the grave, Mr. Cheney and Mr. Bush. Oh, your humor. The afterworld was nothing without your levity. A bust, really? Mm. This country is so awesome. My understanding is we're number one. <laughs> the first woman ever to lie in state and get a statue in the Hall of Fame was Rosa Parks, who the anniversary of her protest was several weeks ago. And that she died when? Like seven years ago? The first woman. Not black. <laughs> the whole crowd. But surely correct. <laughs> when I was in school, this was women's history. First, Betsy Ross sewed a flag. Then Babe Dirickson was like a lesbian, but not really. <laughs> then there was Eleanor Roosevelt, who was most certainly a lesbian, but she was both related and married to a very famous man. <laughs> anyway, any questions? <laughs> you see, the pilgrims made it all on their own because they were very resourceful. <laughs> You know, Columbus traded beads with the natives and they were so happy to help him. <laughs> white people! <laughs> Speaking of white people, this is the 150th anniversary of the ratification of the 13th Amendment. I know that you're all thrilled. Uh, what is the 13th Amendment? It's the one that abolishes slavery. However, I happen to have a copy of it right here. And, uh, but I don't have it on the desk. Uh, sadly, that was poor planning on my part. And I'm talking off mic. Yeah, yeah. For a really long time. But when I come back on the mic, you're going to like it even more. Here we are. Uh, I do carry a copy of the Constitution because, as I say, I get very tired of people telling me what the intent of the framers of the Constitution was. 
So I like to carry a copy around. Uh, Amendment 13, 1865, Abolition of Slavery. By the way, Lincoln was quite dead, and Johnson had to do the campaigning on the end of this. You might have seen the movie Lincoln, written by Tony Kushner and uh, directed by Steven Spielberg. It has its moments. I love Sally Field in it. Uh, there's also a scene where he takes a speech out of his, his stovepipe hat. And he's got the speech in his hat, and he pulls it out. He opens the hat, and he takes the speech out, and then he puts the hat on, and he, and he reads it. And Daniel Day does one of you. Well, I'm not going to be, you know. Uh, and I remember reading an interview with Tony Kushner, and Tony Kushner said, I don't know if Lincoln ever did that. But, but he should have, right? Yeah. That's fucking screenwriting, you guys. Think about it. If you're writing a screenplay right now, don't fucking hesitate. Lincoln takes the speech out of his hat. Don't have him take it out of his pocket. Everyone takes it out of their fucking pocket. He wears a stovepipe hat. Tommy Lee Jones was superb in that movie. Taddeus Stevens was an abolitionist uh, member of the Senate who... Uh, actually did say all the things he says in the movies. He called people poltroons and morons and shit right on the Senate floor. Mind you, the decade leading up to the Civil War and the, the conduct of the Senate during the Civil War, they fought each other on the Senate floor with canes and shit. And I'm not kidding. You can't imagine how fucking horrible the 1850s were in the United States. It's a lot like now. We're, we're leading up to this giant conflagration, right, uh, about race and inequality. Uh, uh, an economic inequality because what was the civil war about race and economic inequality well I thought it was because the southern states wanted their own rights <laughs> you mean the war of northern aggression <laughs> I had a book when I was little called the golden book of the civil war or something like that I'm not kidding Remember those fucking books? And it had a picture of the Union troops marching through Washington and the cover and whatnot. And I loved it because it had battle scenes and all the battles were drawn out little round top and shit. And I remember reading it and whatnot. And the beginning of the book, it was like, the Civil War was fought for many reasons. One was the blah, 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 blah. And then like the 17th paragraph was slavery. And you're like, many reasons? One fucking reason. I love that. The whole crowd's gone quiet. Uh, here's the abolition of slavery. Section one, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude. The reason why Taddeus Stevens is significant, one, he was an abolitionist, but two, he lived uh, and, uh, as man and wife with his black maid. And uh, they, they show it in the movie, and he goes home after this is ratified, and he says to her, they ratified the amendment, and he shows it to her, and she reads it, and, and then they get in bed together. And I thought that was a profound kind of statement to say in a picture. Uh, he didn't, everyone knew her as his maid, but the truth was they were in love. And uh, uh, in any case, uh, I, 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 the, the, the fact of that isn't lost on America. The story of America is that we're all mixed. The story of America is that we're all immigrants. The story of America is that not everybody's Scottish Irish, un unless uh, you're watching a Jimmy Cagney movie, in which case everyone is Scottish Irish. <laughs> and uh, uh, the idea that there uh, is some sort of purity or sangre puro to America, the idea that there's supposed to be, the idea that America's for Americans and shit like that, we killed all the Americans. Um, there's only a few of them left, you know what I mean? Uh, uh, and I mean the Indians, of course. Uh, that, uh, so I, uh, that whole idea uh, always rubbed me the wrong way. I always felt like... Uh, I remember seeing a, a famous comedian years ago uh, do a bit about everyone should speak English when they come here. And all I could think of was my grandparents spoke English, 
they spoke German mostly. My great-grandparents totally didn't speak English until they got here, right? And I was with a friend, and he was black, and I said, did your family speak English when they got here? And he looked at me, and I was like, oh, this joke's not that fucking funny. <laughs> Do I speak German? Nine. I speak Trump, though. Oh, not even funny. <laughs> this is a complex amendment, and uh, the, uh, the um, Emancipation Proclamation was uh, signed about two years before, right, in the summer of 1863, and that gave the slaves their freedom. This, however, is the North finally agreeing to this. And mind you, Democrats weren't on the side of this at the time, right? It, everything was obverse then. Lincoln's the first Republican and all that jazz after the Whig Party. In any case, to make it even less boring, there's a clause in here that leads to all the mayhem that reminds us that the Civil War wasn't fought to free anyone, but to merely change the conditions of servitude. And this is it. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for crime. Right? So there's the clause that fucks everything up. For crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist. So if I take that sentence out, it's this. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. But they put in the sentence in the middle of it. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. Well, if there's one thing we're certain of in this country, it's that the underclass, i.e. black people, are duly convicted of crimes. And therefore, their slavery is guaranteed by the Constitution. By going to prison in the giant economic prison corporate system that we have, where people work for two cents a day and shit like that or whatever it is, and uh, there's still gangs all over the South, is not only... Uh, enshrined in uh, the Constitution of the United States. It's fucking immortalized in marble. Section 2, Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Well, that was the, uh, the fault of the 13th Amendment, I think, by they were so afraid, let me put it that way, the white legislators of the time, and there were no black people elected to the Senate, uh, Congress then. After the war, of course, there were. And then that stopped uh, by 1876, by the Tilden election uh, with uh, Christ. In any case, Hayes. In any case, I know, I started to labor to a halt under my own history here. The 14th Amendment, which happens three years later, privileges and immunities, due process, equal protection, apportionment of representatives, civil war disqualification, and debt. Any of that sound familiar? All persons born or naturalized, meaning they come here, right, parents, subject to the jurisdiction thereof, are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So, say your parents were Arab and Muslim, and they came here from another country, and then they moved here and you were born here. Doesn't the 14th Amendment specifically state that your rights shall not be abridged at any time? And yet, this week, 
The idea was floated by one of the people, in fact, the leading candidate for the Republican nomination for president, that all Muslims should be barred from the United States and that the Muslims here should be fucking looked after, right? It reminded us all of the Japanese internment camps. It reminded us all of Germany in the war. It reminded us all of any uh, pogrom that you want to think of, Cambodia, uh, uh, the Balkans. There's always a time when there's an enemy found, and the enemy is always an easy enemy, perhaps in the minority, uh, uh, most conveniently in the minority, so that every Everyone can agree on it. Uh, and then an outside threat exists, which, uh, as you've seen, is not extant in the United States. We're quite capable of uh, doing our own mayhem on one another. Um, uh, and then uh, the ball gets rolling, as it were. Um, the goalposts keep getting moved so that the argument can be more extreme, so that the extremity of the argument seems more normalized. Uh, what is it called? The Overton Shift? Rachel Maddow was talking about it last night on her show. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a truth uh, in the world, and it's a truth in PR. And politics is all PR. Uh, and like that. Uh, so uh, having said that, it's glorious that this amendment was even passed in the United States and uh, because we were the last bloody country in the first world uh, to abolish slavery. Uh, if you want to read about Charles Dickens and the British ambassador's view of slavery when they were here in the 1850s and 1860s, they really couldn't understand it at all. England had abolished it uh, several uh, decades before. Of course, on the other hand, English had flourished, England had flourished in the slave trade, and Liverpool was really the center and banking center. And even if you watch the movie Gone with the Wind, I think Clark Gable says at one point, well, all my money's in a bank in Liverpool. Uh, and that's not an accident that he says that. Um, in any case, uh, uh, people at the time understood that it was a blight on mankind, as we understand now, of course, and understand even further that slavery exists in the United States, not the definition, not a softened 21st century definition, but real slavery, meaning people who have no other choice that have to do what they have to do every day, exists all over the world. Um, this part's not funny. Uh, and then Obama uh, uh, gave a, a, one, uh, a speech today at the White House. Now, the profundity, or the profound moment, the resonance, and we can be proud of this, I think, and we can at least hold on to it as a shred of dignity in the otherwise uh, whirling cesspool that is presidential politics. The fact that a president is sitting whose father was born in Africa and mother in the United States, who was educated overseas in Indonesia and whatnot, and lived in Hawaii, and uh, went to school at the best Ivy League schools, and then went through the machine in Chicago, and ended up president. Now, he's a black man in a house built by slaves, right? The White House was built by fucking slaves. And for him to be able to get up on the 150th anniversary... It's, one, far too late and far too sad, much like I always talk about my hero, Jackie Robinson, and how baseball always congratulates itself for finally letting a black person play, and we actually have a day in the flag waves, and everybody's supposed to be all glad and shit, instead of like, I'm ashamed that it took this fucking long. On the other hand, there's the glory of knowing that we did fucking do this, finally, and that everything moves quite slowly in the United States. Um, and like that. Obama calls to reject bigotry in speech marking the end of slavery. He echoed Martin Luther King uh, he, blah, 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 in Emancipation Hall during a commemoration ceremony. Speaking at a ceremony, he mentioned the long arc of progress toward equality. He added the work of those who fought for freedom was far from complete. We would be doing a disservice to those warriors of justice were we to deny that the scars of our nation's original sin are still with us today. And that's a brilliant way to put it. Our nation's original sin is that we were born and that in 
in that being born, servitude and bondage was not eradicated. And that when the founding fathers had the chance to do it, they did not do that. And that slavery and servitude were, have always been a part of the United States, along with the wanton violence uh, that we're so fond of and uh, that we lean toward here. We condemn ourselves to shackles once more if we fail to answer. I know you guys are listening because all I heard was a chair squeak. <laughs> if we fail to answer those who wonder if they're truly equals in their communities, we betray the efforts of the past if we fail to push back against bigotry in all its forms. That was directed at Donald Trump. He did not mention directly Donald Trump's proposal to ban Americans, but he said, hold fast to our values in the face of division, despair, and ugliness. We betray our most noble past as well as if we were to deny the possibility of movement, the possibility of progress, if we were to let cynicism consume us and fear overwhelm us. Roosevelt would have been proud to say that. To remember our freedom is bound up in the freedom of others. That's an amazing thing to say. Whether it's lip service, whether that's pure cynicism, whether it's politicking or whatever you want to believe, it's a wonderful thing to say on the anniversary. Regardless of what they look like, where they come from, or what their last name is, or what faith they practice. Shirley Chisholm ran for president in 1972 against Richard Nixon. She was the first black woman elected to Congress. A very good friend of the show named Bill, who goes by the unfortunate Twitter handle of Jack Shett, uh, gave me this wonderful book called The Good Fight. And yes, it is fucking autographed by Shirley Chisholm, who is quite gone and swirling in the heavens. Shirley Chisholm is a hero of mine. She was educated in Barbados, or Barbados, if you will, and I think you might. Uh, she was given a good education there and fought her way up to become a congressperson from Texas. She ran against Richard Nixon in 72 and lost the nomination to George McGovern. George McGovern, also who passed away several years ago, was a war hero in World War II. Uh, and uh, like so many Democrats who ran as war heroes, um, was maligned for his heroism uh, while the Republicans took the tack of uh, he's not tough enough, right? Uh, in any case, this is what Shirley Chisholm said, and it's about women. Because if we're talking about slavery, we're talking about women. And if we're talking about slavery in this day and age, we're decidedly talking about women. As I've said on the show, and I'll repeat boringly for the billionth time, there are no other issues other than the issue of women's equality. If women's equality is the first issue, every other issue follows behind that. Economics, war, uh, inequality, servitude, bondage, DDDDD. How can you say that, Greg? Well, look at the target of all the terrorists that we're so afraid of, uh, the Day Arthur, whatever you want to call them, the ISIL, ISIS, if you're uh, Donald Trump, uh, or the Boko Haram. Women are largely the victims of all inequality, poverty, and slavery in the world. This is what Shirley Chisholm said in 1972 in the book that she wrote about her election, The Good Fight. Some of you may be thinking, how can she say this discrimination is so virulent? Isn't she the first black female member of Congress? That proves that the bias isn't really too great. On the contrary, my battle was long, incredibly hard, and continual. Because I pushed, I encountered the strongest prejudice of less competent males, both black and white. That is a certitude. That is a certainty that's never changed. There's one thing you can be sure of, and that less competent males, black and white, are going to assert their primacy over everybody all the goddamn time. 
Look at the people who are fucking walking around out there asserting the things they're asserting. It's just fucking shocking. And uh, anyone with half a goddamn uh, lobe to rub together against another one uh, will know that history repeats this again and again. And that uh, uh, um, we can be glad. And Shirley Chisholm would be glad, I think. Uh, that a, there was a black president uh, on the 150th anniversary. Uh, I don't think pride is a moment that we need to take, um, but gladness is certainly a feeling we can all uh, embrace. Uh, we live in revolutionary times. That was 72. We still live in revolutionary times. Maybe even more revolutionary. And as I've said on the show, boringly, a thousand times, when I was a kid, there was the Bader Meinhof gang and the Shining Path and the Red Brigade and the, right? Yeah. The Path at Lao, and the, uh, the IOA, and the ATA, and the Weathermen, and the, yeah. Oh no, there's been a revolution ever, 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 ever. It's just that people want to pretend that there isn't an ongoing revolution. And the revolution works. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a black president. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a woman that so many are angry about that's running for president that's quite popular. <laughs> People are feel free to pour their vitriol all over the woman running for president. That's how much times have fucking changed. And ever since I was a little kid, uh, 75 years ago. <laughs> when the 14th Amendment got passed, I did a jig. <laughs> We'll move on. Uh, a couple of quickies, and then uh, I've got so much to get to because there's a couple of excellent people that need to be recognized, and then we're going. Um, this is uh, from this is Frederick Douglass' speech that he gave on the Fourth of July uh, in 1852, which uh, was uh, 11 years before the Emancipation Proclamation, 14 years before the Thirteenth Amendment. Frederick Douglass was born to a slave mother and a white father, in case you didn't know that. As I've said on the show before, Lincoln received him at the White House several times. He was actually stopped at the door by the white guard, and then he gave word back, and the, white, uh, the word was sent back to Lincoln, and Lincoln let him come in. And he stood up and shook his hand and said, hello, my friend, in front of a room full of his white cabinet. Uh, the beginning of his long career as an abolitionist, Douglass delivered this speech in Rochester, New York, in 1852. Uh, what to the American slave is your Fourth of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than any of the other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatless swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciations of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. Yeah. Rahm Emanuel had to face a raging crowd today in Chicago because of what happened with Mr. McDonald a year ago in the 16 shots. Freddie Gray's trial is going on in Ohio as we speak. You understand where I'm coming from with all this very acutely. I know you do. I can feel it. What I'm saying is what Frederick Douglass had to say, what Shirley Chisholm had to say, uh, hasn't changed. That fight is eternal. E 
eternal. Uh, the revolution continues at all times and is quite, uh, quite worthy of being fought. August Wilson was someone I had the pleasure of meeting. I'm not going to go into the lengthy story. I've told it before in the show. However, he passed away some 10 years ago. And as Kyle and I and Jennifer and Aaron were discussing before the show, it felt like August Wilson had been a playwright for 45 years, but really his career is a little over 20 years long. He died so young, and uh, it was a profound moment uh, to get to meet him for me, because I thought he was such an awesome person. The show he did was so... What a fucking shit show it was. Someone yelled, fuck you, Kojak, at him because he's bald. And I got up and read the dude the fucking riot act for like a year. This was at the Aspen Comedy Festival, where he received a Freedom Award. And... The next day I saw him and I was like, August, I'm really sorry about it. And he went, I had a great time. (laughs) Ten Play Odyssey continues with Gem of the Ocean. Gem of the Ocean was uh, one of the last uh, productions he put up. Uh, This is an article from the Boston Sunday Globe from 2004. August Wilson. We've spent 400 years trying to civilize white people. (laughs) <laughs> says playwright August Wilson lighting a cigarette at a table outside Pizzeria Uno near the Huntington Theater. <laughs> if you look at even a bit of history, you see that in most of the experiences of black America, most of black America's confrontations with white America, it is white America that has acted uncivilized, Wilson says, puffing on a Marlboro light. Taking people away from their freedom is not civilized behavior. Hanging them from trees is not civilized behavior. Refusing citizens' right to legal protection, the right to vote, is not civilized. Um, When you hear people get on TV or wherever you hear them on your phone, And they talk about barring people from entering the country, or they talk about we have to get a registry of people, or we talk about uh, the tribes of Crump are innumerable. The tribes of Crump. I actually sat down. The tribes of Crump. That's what the show is called from now on. The innumerable tribes of Crump. Uh, the tribes of Crump are just shocking. Uh, women, Mexicans, uh, the people of Iowa, uh, Muslims. Uh, yeah, he said the people in Iowa were idiots because Ben Carson got a lead on him for a minute. What was? It? Well, I'm trying to think of everything. Then yesterday it was we're going to lock Muslims, and then today it was we're going to shut the internet down. Because yeah. Yeah. ISIS is using it. And he went, some people are going to cry, freedom of speech! I I will I will if you will Uh, demagoguery is uh, what that is Uh, people are calling it fascist but fascists are sexier and more organized (laughs) I could almost subscribe to a fascist belief system Trump, Crump, oof too try me The 400 richest Americans now have more wealth than the bottom 61% of the population. The Institute for Policy Studies reveals the Forbes 400 and the rest of us. The 20 individuals at the top of the pile, a group that could fit into a Gulfstream G650 luxury jet, control more wealth than the bottom half of the population. That's 152 million people living in 57 million households. So much wealth is hidden, the uber-rich, either in offshore tax havens, uh, uh, where money is shuffled around in a private corporate accounts or between different family members, it disappears from taxation or any sort of oversight or accountability. 
these inequalities really undermine our quality of life. We need to explain to people who say, so what? I don't care how much the Forbes 500 has. It really does teach, uh, touch our lives deeply and profoundly. People are realizing a certain amount of inequality as part of how society works, but these are absurdly extremes levels of inequality. I would say that they're medieval extremes of inequality, inequality, that they're feudal Japan extremes of inequality, that they're whatever era you want to choose, um, maybe Russia right before the revolution. You know what I'm talking about? Look out on Santa Monica Boulevard. There's a starving, dying, crazy person out there right now. And you know what the fuck I'm talking about. There's billionaires all over the United States, not just in L.A., everywhere. They don't share. They don't care. They have no truck with giving any money into the social system. Education and supporting the poor are not on their agenda in any way. They have three main agendas. Profit, growth, and making sure that the government enacts laws that protect their wealth. Why doesn't the government do anything about it? Because the government responds only to the donor class. The donor class is the class that rules the United States, and that's why things are the way they are now. Why does Donald Trump appeal to so many people? People are angry and frustrated. No one has any money. People live in crappy homes with blue tubs in front of them. They fucking do, man. People don't have any health care. Who should they blame but Muslims? You know what I mean? In a horrible, hideous... You understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's right or it's good or that it makes any sense or that you should subscribe to it in any way. You just have to understand where everyone's coming from. Just because you're privileged enough to be here tonight and listen to me doesn't mean... It's quite the privilege. Exactly. And uh, there is a way uh, to uh, just redistribute wealth. It's not an easy way, and it's not one that's going to happen overnight, and it's not one that's going to happen soon. But it can happen, and it does happen, and it has happened many times. Um, I think you'll find the French Revolution was an awesome redistribution of wealth. (laughs) The Russian Revolution certainly made some noise for a while, didn't it? I don't think we have to go to all those extremes. Um, Enforcing tax laws might be an awesome way to start. And um, uh, there's no way to make the rich understand that they're part of humanity. They don't understand that. And I don't think they can. I think the money has seeped into their brains and it's, it's made them different people than they were. I think F. Scott Fitzgerald was completely right about that. And he sponged off the rich more than any human you could possibly imagine. (laughs) So he knew... Uh, will you put on that Lou Reed song on the uh, Lubitsch uh, playlist there? Uh, this is about Hollywood Lawn, who uh, is swirling in the stars this week. Not only is she swirling in the stars, uh, she's doing a Puerto Rican catwalk of infinite fucking attitude all over up in that place. Uh, she was one of Warhol's superstars. And um, uh, let's see here. What do they say in this? Uh, here, just let's play the crank this part up, because I think the first line's about Holly. Holly came from Miami, FLA Hitchhiked away across USA Plucked her eyebrows on the way Shaved her legs and then he was a she She says, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side Said, hey honey, take a walk on the wild side As I've said on the show before, that record came out when I was like 12 years old that was a pop song on the AM radio, you guys. And that was the opening line. And I was 12 and I was like, 
She did what? <laughs> How transgressive is that fucking line, man? Lou Reed was the poet laureate of the underclass and the underworld. And Hollywood Lawn uh, is one of the great transgressive uh, uh, pioneers in fucking... Now we live in a transgender world where it's acknowledged, uh, at least in our, uh, you know, white privileged world. And here in Hollywood and shit. But it's growing and growing and growing all the time and LGBT rights are an uh, essential part of the movement forward. Excuse me. Um, I think Hollywood Lawn is a hero uh, in so many regards. Um, Trash and Women in Revolt uh, were her big pictures and what was the other one we were talking about? Flash, yeah. Uh, we had a chance to meet Holly and uh, work with her uh, several years ago and uh, she did the talk show at the Largo and gave us her book uh, Low Life and High Heels and uh, she couldn't have been more real during the show, right? And it was fuck this and fuck that and she really had a lot of fantastic opinions and indomitable fucking spirit for a person from Puerto Rico who literally lived through poverty and had to be a prostitute, got to the level of being a Warhol superstar, enjoyed some success here and there and then was basically a cult figure and uh, 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 as I say, I, I think someone to look up to, you know, because that kind of resolve and inner strength in the face of every type of degradation is uh, is an amazing thing. And um, she says about this song, uh, it made me immortal, honey, for what that's worth. Uh, all I do these days is drink wine and smoke electronic cigarettes, she said. Everyone thought I was going to be the first to go. Ha ha, I fooled them all. Uh, she's married to Joe D'Alessandro's heroin addict and trash and the man-hating nymphomaniac and women in revolt was never an act. Holly was that loopy in life. Uh, the character in Trash was eyebrow. This this line is so great. Eyebrows penciled on to resemble existential question marks. <laughs> it was Holly who wrote in her name. She changed her name from Geraldo Don Hockle, hitchhiked to New York from Miami at 16, and fell in with a group of prostitutes of any and every gender, led by a ringleader with the unappetizing pseudonym Porky. Turning tricks and buying 25-cent lipsticks from subway vending machines, living off the streets and wondering where my next wheel was coming from. Unlike those in the Warhol orbit, like Bridget Berlin or Baby Jane Holzer or Edie, girls with upper-class backgrounds, Holly did not hail from what she called the aristocratic. Hers was a different kind of aristocracy, one formed not from bloodlines, but brazen moxie, heedlessness in the face of convention, and determination to claim for herself the glamorous existence denied for, by some obvious misalignment of fate. Yeah, right? Vincent Canby called her a comic book mother courage who fancies herself as Marlena Dietrich but so, more often sounds like Phil Silvers. And she said, uh, if I can find it here, it was something about Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, there it is. Uh... She had some success. Here it is. I felt like Elizabeth Taylor. Little did I realize that not only would there be no money, but your star would flicker for two seconds and that would it. But it was worth it. <laughs> the drugs, the parties, it was fabulous. Uh, Hollywood Lawn is swirling in the heavens tonight and uh, she's irreplaceable on this planet. Uh, mm, why not? There's no show on after this, so I'm going to go a couple more minutes if you don't mind. Uh, <laughs> Gloria Steinem wrote something that I found. Uh, um, it was on the Huffington Post, but I'm going to read it anyway. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. Along with the 10 best uses for quinoa. <laughs> 
five secrets of the happiest couples. <laughs> Ten exercises you should stop doing right now. <laughs> really? You have time to do exercises in your life? You realize what your life is like? Do you realize what your life is like? Do you realize what your life is like? You don't have to walk and get fresh water from a hole and get raped on the way back. And the crowd goes quiet. <laughs> I love Gloria Steinem. Uh, she's a wonderful woman, a, 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 an important figure in American history. And if you don't mind me saying so, she's hot. Uh, the speech was delivered at Betty's Holiday Show and appeared on Facebook, blah, blah, blah. E- despite that it was on Facebook, I'm going to read it. An abject... By the way, this whole Facebook giving $45 billion, whatever it is, charity thing, it's... <coughs> It's a tax shelter that he set up with his wife. Now, I'm all for billionaires giving away their money. But let me ask you this. And, you know, you can ask it. I'm I'm singling out Mark Zuckerberg here or whatever. But I'll ask it of any billionaire, Warren Buffet or whoever the fuck you are, the Koch brothers. You know, let's go across the board here. Why should anyone have $45 billion? Can I just say that? Who, who said it? Is it uh, Hannah uh, Arendt? She didn't say that. She said the banality of evil. Behind every great fortune is a great crime. Uh, whoever the fuck said that, it's so true. There is no such thing as a fortune that big without somebody died or somebody suffered. I mean, there just isn't. There isn't. There isn't. There isn't. But what about the people or anything in a laissez-faire capitalist society? Don't make me vote Trump, because I fucking will. <laughs> I want to make West Hollywood great again. You used to be able to go to Astro Burger and get whatever you wanted. You know what I'm saying? Gloria Steinem wrote this piece. It's called 10 Things I Want for Christmas. I'm not going to read them all. 10. An abject apology from Donald Trump for being a birther, any immigrant builder of buildings that look like big Dunhill cigarette lighters. (laughs) The world's most punishing source of green cards for women who marry him to get one. Oh, yeah. Oh, she gets to say that. Daring to rate women is no longer tens when he himself has never been a one. Going bankrupt multiple times in order to stick other people with his bad judgment debt, pretending he ever hit home run when he actually was born on third base, and oh yes, setting the hair weave industry all the way back to Rogaine. Uh, If Trump doesn't apologize, I wish us all the gift of remembering that Hitler was democratically elected in a low voter turnout. I would like, this is number eight, I would like state legislatures to stop building prisons with money that once went to universities. Yeah. Number seven, I'm glad to begin, we've begun to raise our daughters more like our sons, but it will never work until we raise our sons more like our daughters. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Fucking piece of shit. <laughs> I hate this. Paper's so uh, pliant. <laughs> It went all the way to the top. Wait, shut up. <laughs> Number six. I want people to know the great gift of Black Lives Matter was created by three young black women, Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi, and Patrice Colors, and that has led to three great yeah, organizing guidelines. Lead with love, low ego, high impact, move at the speed of trust. I don't agree with low ego, but I agree with everything else on there. <laughs> 
And this is an Uber one, which I thought was funny by her, because uh, I think Uber's a real issue for women. Uh, I think Uber's a real issue to begin with, because I think the venture capitalist douchewads that started it uh, are uh, as piratical as any fucking robber baron that ever owned a railroad. Yeah. You can believe what you like, and you can even take one tonight, and I'm sure you will. As Jeff Davis so brilliantly said, if you take Uber, you have to, you're going to cry from the cologne, and if you take Lyft, someone is going to pitch you a podcast idea. <laughs> But I'm going to read you this quip by Gloria Steinem. I want Uber to stop charging for the weather. Nobody, not even airlines, charges for the weather. I want Uber to stop refusing the disabled. And now with 30,000 unregulated Uber cars in New York, driving wheelchair accessible taxis out of business. Don't let Uber become Uber Alles. Uh, I, I agree. I, as you know, in my platform, in my first 100 days of the proptocracy that we're going to enjoy when I'm elected world leader, uh, there's no fucking Uber. Yeah. Uh, I, I believe in independent taxis. Uh, I would like you to send a nice Christmas to President Obama for surviving the ultra-right wingers who, if they had cancer and Obama had the cure, wouldn't accept it. I want any, I want any number three, I want any young men who buy a gun to be treated like young women who seek an abortion. And then... Uh, I want three magical women. Uh, da, da, da. Finally, I want to make it out. I want to make it to 100 because I don't want to leave. That's so sweet. You in this room are the biggest gift of all. There's no question of that. I was thinking about it the other night. I was doing a gig and uh, I was looking at the audience. And all I could think of was there's nothing more important. This is, I, I realize that sounds like the most incandescent fucking like uh, Roman candle of ego you've ever fucking heard in your life. <laughs> But you have to understand where I'm coming from in the vast fucking pit and black hole where my personality exists that I need the approval of other people. I think we all dig. We're in Hollywood. I don't think I'm talking out of school here and shit. I'm just saying, not so much that the overwhelming approval of people is all I seek ever in my life. It's the, the exultant moment of being able to connect like this and being able to talk to everybody in a room or being in a big show or whatever. I've, I've had a couple of big shows this year with a lot of famous people and it really was exciting because the, there's no other way to capture the moments of your life. Like, obviously, the most important moments of my life are on stage and not with my wife. But the, the, what I'm getting at is... <laughs> strike that. Reverse it. No. Obviously, the most important thing is in my life is my wife. But in my performing life, uh, those moments are so exhilarating, and I wouldn't trade them. And uh, I, I, the older I get, and by the way, it's going fast, um, uh, I find that uh, trying to slow everything down is what I want to do. When I was little and young, I, all I could want was all I wanted was to be older and to get that going. And now that I'm older, all I want is to slow it down and move it backwards. So I know what she says when she says, I want to live to be 100. I don't want to live to be 100. But I would like to slow every moment down uh, so that we're all having pizza and chatting. Uh, John Trudell uh, 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 is an American Indian. Uh, let's see here. And here's his quote. He, he, has, walk, he has walked on. Uh, if you want to have some fun, Indian Country is a great website. And it's the one of the official, like, Indian websites where they talk about different figures in their country and in their country in their society it's our it's their country and we're fucking dwelling in it and shit in any case here's his quote and it's this is what John Trudell said 
Historically speaking, we went from being Indians to pagans, to savages, to hostiles, to militants, to activists, to Native Americans. It's 500 years later, and they still can't see us. We're still invisible. And truer words was never spake. Uh, I'll read a few lines about him. I want you to play that Chris Christopherson song, if you will. Chris Christopherson was buddies with him. Oh, he was a showbiz activist, as well as a real proper poet and, um, and seeker. Uh, he was... Uh, he walked on uh, uh, this week... Um, Let's see here. This is a song called Johnny Lobo by, uh, by Chris Christopherson about him. What, what makes it so awesome, aside from that Chris Christopherson wrote a song about him, is that in listening to it again, I realized Chris Christopherson can't sing on key to save his goddamn life. <laughs> Once upon a dusty reservation. Really? <laughs> Somewhere in the land of Sittenbull. It doesn't quite matter, though, does it? Johnny turn it up for just a second. With fire and of I know I'm playing the white evil version of his life, but I'm going to get his. Locked inside a heaven gone to hell. Is he flat or is he sharp? All the dreams were gone, <laughs> but not forgotten. Yes. yes. Heard like the that... holy buffalo. Did I hear holy buffalo? Yeah. Johnny Lobo knew the rules and grew in John Trudell was a Santi Dakota. No, what was that? Oh, okay. It just said no definition found. Does anyone know what that part of your phone is? Artist, actor, poet whose life dedicated to indigenous human rights. He helped spark a spoken word movement that is a continuation of Native American oral traditions. He walked on December 8th at 69. He spent his years on the Santi Reservation in northern Nebraska. His father was Santi and his mother was a Mexican Indian heritage. Again, my assertion. My family, I'm certain, uh, is mixed uh, in the way back, as is all of yours. He had a normal life until his mother died at six and the new rock and roll music resonated with him. He married Financia Lou Ordonez in 68, briefly attended college. Everything changed in 69, and I was, I was a little kid then. When Native American students, Trudell among them, occupied Alcatraz from not, uh, November 20, 69 to June 11, 1970. It was so awesome. I lived in San Carlos, California, and it was on the news every night, because this was in San Francisco. So every night they would show them on Alcatraz, and everybody was like, what's their problem? And it was like, they're Indians. They went to Alcatraz to point out that uh, it was theirs. Alcatraz isn't even their name for it. That's the Spanish name for it. It means pelican, right? They became the Indians of all tribes, and they issued the manifesto, We Hold the Rock, and eventually the book, Alcatraz is Not an Island. It became an incubator for the nascent Native American rights movement, including the American Indian Movement, AIM, in Minneapolis. The legal basis for this occupation was the Treaty of Fort Laramie of 1868, which said that any abandoned federal property would revert to the Indian nations. This treaty's legality would also inspire many more actions across Indian country. He maintained these political actions were not moral, ethical issues, but were legal issues. Uh, he started uh, Radio Free Alcatraz, an Indian center, uh, the Trail of Broken Tears, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the issuance of the 20 Points Manifesto, the scattering of activists over the BIA takeover led to American uh, Indian actions at the Custer County Courthouse, followed by the 73 Liberation Occupation of Wounded Knee, which was a terrible shootout that happened in the 70s. And, by the way, uh, as I recall, the Indians were terrorists in that shootout against the federal agents, which they had been in the original shootout in Wounded Knee. 
Everybody seemed to have a personal... The Sitting Bull was killed by uh, federal police, uh, Indian police, at the behest of white people. And Sitting Bull was a, a, a Sioux as well. Uh, some folks never met him, have the same feeling. Poetry editor at... Uh, I reviewed Trudell's first poetry, uh, Living in Reality, Songs Called Poems. A simple chapbook produced straight from Indian country on Franklin Avenue, Minneapolis. Um, so he was a poet, an actor, and author here. This one is the thing. The FBI... In the documentary Trudell by Heather Ray, they quote the FBI memo. He's extremely eloquent, therefore extremely dangerous. They compiled a 17,000-page dossier on him. This is what the FBI does with our money, you guys. Uh, Trudell said in the uh, documentary incident in Oglala, all I did was talk and they cracked down hard just for that. Um, in a suspicion... Oh, God, it's so... His wife and children were killed in a fire, and it's almost certain that the law enforcement really did that to him. In any case, let's get to the uh, 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 hopeful part of all of this. He did a, a lot of good in this world, and he released, uh, he made several albums. Let's spin his record, and then we'll fuck off into this good night. I didn't tell you this to bum you out. I told you this because if there's anything to be proud of in living in America, it's that Shirley Chisholm and Barack Obama and John Trudell and Hollywood Lawn and all of us live in America. And that's what makes America the groovy place. It's not laws and it's not white people and it's not flags and it's not wars and it's not any of that nonsense. It's that a bunch of people knowing who they were had the backbone and the temerity to fucking organize their shit together and move everything forward in recognition because that's what America is all about. He talked about invisibility, Mr. Trudeau, and Hollywood Lawn lived in an underworld almost all of her life. And all anyone wants is to be counted, and all anyone wants is to be valued as a human being. And I think that uh, if I leave you with anything tonight, never mind the, uh, 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 um, the crimes of Trump, uh, the crimes of Trump, rather. Uh, our crimes uh, uh, will be behind us uh, soon. Uh, it's Christmas time, and it's important to remember uh, that we're all individuals and we have our autonomy. And if we have nothing else, as uh, George Orwell said, we have the square inches uh, inside our head, and those are ours forever, and, and no one can get in there. And I wish you nothing but love. Crazy. Uh, this has been uh, The Smartest Man in the World. You have been the smartest God in the world. Happy Saturnalia. Happy whatever.